Welcome to the Staying Connected podcast, the preaching ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in Montrose, Colorado. I'm Pastor Roland Kennison, and I want to thank you for listening. Rosemont Baptist Mission is passionately bringing people face-to-face with the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. It is our prayer that through this podcast, you'll hear our passion for people and the gospel, and that you will truly experience the transformation that only Jesus Christ can bring. The Christian faith can be difficult to understand at times. As believers begin to think deeper about our faith, questions may begin to arise. And questions are a good thing. They're indications that a person is loving God with all their mind. This series of sermons entitled Questions Christians Ask are responses to some questions I have periodically received. I pray these sermons will stir your thoughts and drive you closer to God. Now, let's begin our time today. We're going to be in Exodus 32 this morning, so you can turn to Exodus 32, but I want to make sure you understand where we're at when we read Exodus 32. God has powerfully freed his people from slavery. 400 years they had been in Egypt, and he worked in great, powerful ways, and they are now free from, from slavery and able to make their way to the promised land. And then when you turn in your Bible and you, you get to Exodus 19, what you find is that God has, has uh, led Moses to Mount Sinai where he, he is going to go up and receive the law. And so in Exodus 19, Moses ascends Mount Sinai and in and, and it says that in Exodus 20 that smoke covered this mountain and f- the Lord came down in fire and the, the whole mountain quaked and, and it shook and the people were afraid. And God in Exodus 20 begins to tell Moses how he is going to relate to his people and his people are going to relate to him, we call it the law. And he starts off in Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments, what we call the Ten Commandments. But for the next uh, 21 chapters, including chapter 20, all the way through chapter 31, God gives Moses this law. We, we think of the Ten Commandments, but it's, it's much more than Ten Commandments. In fact, one person has counted them, said it's 619 commandments, and, and it may be even more than that. But the, we, we have that uh, the law that has been, been given to the people. Moses is on Mount Sinai. This cloud is covered, and God is, is giving him directly the law. And, and we find out not only this is how God's going to relate to his people, his people to him, but it, we find out later um, as, as New Testament believers that this is how God is going, what, this is what God's going to use to point us to the need for a Savior, that, that we cannot fulfill this law. It is a tutor to bring us to Christ. And so we, that, that is where we are at in, in Exodus 32. The people are waiting for Moses, and he's taking a long time up there, and there's smoke and lightning, and it looks like fire, and, and, and uh, they, they're not sure if he's coming back down, and they're afraid, and they go right back to their old ways of idolatry, and they say, you know what we should do? We should gather a bunch of gold we, we just pill, pillaged Egypt. They just gave us all this gold. We've got all this gold. Let's make an idol. Let's make a representation of who our God is, the God who brought us out of Egypt. That way we could really worship him well. While God is on the mountain telling Moses, thou shall have no other God before me. Thou shall not make any graven image to worship and bow down before it. The people are down below saying, hey, let's make an idol. That is where we're going to be at in Exodus 32. Exodus 32, 7, it says this. They have made this idol, and they are, it says in verse 6, they sat down to eat, to drink, and rose up 
to play. And verse seven, it says this, then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them, and they have made for themselves a molten calf, and they have worshipped it, and have sacrificed to it, and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they're an obstinate people. King James says they're a stiff-necked people. And now, in verse 10, he says, Now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, and I may destroy them, and I will make you, Moses, a great nation. In verse 11, it says, Then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people? whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, and all this land which I have spoken will be, I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Let's pray this morning. God, I thank you for your word. And God, as we deal with some of these difficult questions that always seem to pop up with our faith, I pray that you would help us understand who you are, what your purposes are, and what that means for us. I pray you would teach us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There was a small town, I heard. This is a parable. A small town that didn't have any bars or any liquor stores of any kind. And, and they enjoyed that. But there was a man who came to town, an entrepreneur, who saw the opportunity and said, you know what, I can, I can make a killing here. And so he opened up a nightclub on the main street of town. And, and this bothered the local Baptist church, and they were, they were upset with that. So they began to pray to the Lord, shut this down. And they would have all-night prayer meetings where they would pray, God, shut down, this church, shut down this nightclub where it needs to be out of our town. There's too much sin going on there. It is not a good place. God, shut it down. Now, the nightclub owner knew that these people were praying and would, would mock them for that, but they continued to pray. And one day there was a terrible storm in the city, and lightning came, and it struck the nightclub, and it caught on fire and burnt to the ground, completely destroyed. And the nightclub owner was upset with this, and so he got a lawyer and he went and said, these church people prayed that, lightning, or that, that God would shut it down and lightning sh struck and burnt down my nightclub. So I want to sue them for destroying my nightclub. And the church got a lawyer and said, hey, this wasn't us. We, were, we, we had nothing to do with it. It's not our fault. And they took this case to the judge, and the judge listened to both sides, and he considered this quite a bit, and he said, look, I'm not sure where the guilt may lie in this case, but there's one thing for sure. The nightclub owner believes in the power of prayer, and the church really does not. Because he was blaming them before the lightning, and they were denying anything to do with it. Now, that might be an exaggeration, there are times, though, where those who have trusted God, those who have trusted Christ for their salvation, they have prayed, 
and they do not really believe. They're not really convinced of the power of prayer. Does my prayer change anything would be maybe the concern. There might be times we pray and we're not sure our prayer does anything. We are told we should pray. We are told prayer changes things. But maybe if we're alone and thinking deep in our heart, we're like, maybe some other people's, but mine doesn't. And so, but we see throughout Scripture that prayer is powerful and prayer has an impact. So what does it mean when we think about prayer and who God is and what God does? Now, I'm specifically addressing some questions that you all had given to me, and, and I look through those, and I try to answer, and, and that's not even a good, I try to respond to them. I don't have all the answers. In fact, one of the reasons I like doing that is because I do a lot of research, get some answers from a lot of people who know a lot more than I do, and then I'm able to share it with you. So um, that, that's, that's part of, part of this. But there was one specific question that I received that it was really, I believe, in the realm of prayer and its impact. It asked this, is it possible for God to change his mind? Is it possible for God to change his mind? Now, when I hear that, I'm assuming it has to do with prayer. We know God has a purpose. God is in control. And so when I go to God with prayer, is there anything I can do to change his mind? And it's an important question because throughout Scripture, we are told God does not change because God does not change. We read in Numbers 23, 19, look what it says. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said it and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not make it good? It says here, God does not repent. God doesn't do, go one direction and then change and think, oh, I shouldn't have done that. But I just read in Exodus that he changed his mind. We read in 1 Samuel 15, 29, also the glory of Israel will not lie. This is talking about God. He will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Seems like an open and shut case, right? We're done. Boom. God doesn't change his mind. Says so right there. But I read in Exodus 14, so the Lord changed his mind about the harm that he said he would do to his people. How do we reconcile this? What, is this, what does this mean? Let's see if we can work through this passage in Exodus and gain some insight. We may or may not. <laughs> Don't want to get your hopes up too high, but we are going to work through this passage and see what we can learn. So, when answering the question, does God change his mind, the first thing we need to remember is that God is unchanging. God's character is unchanging. Who God is never changes. I want to go back and read 7 through 10. This is God speaking. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once for your people, whom you brought up from the land of Egypt and have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they're an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, and I may destroy them and make you a great nation. We see that God here is always who God is. God is a holy God. And no matter what else we say, we need to understand that God is holy and he must punish sin. That is who God is. And that will never change. These people of God, they are sinning. He had just commanded them. Well, he had, he had commanded them um, earlier 
And, and he says that he has commanded them, but he is right now on the mountain laying down these commands so that they would know for sure. They knew, they knew better. They knew who their God was. These are the, the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we just read a little bit of Genesis to understand they knew who God was. They knew who the one true God was. They knew no idol would, would, be, would be good. And so they needed to uh, not be doing this. And God says, I will not abide with it. I'm going to destroy them. And so he's giving, he's giving the law. The people are playing the harlot. And what we see is God doesn't change. This isn't, God doesn't sit here and say, well, this is their first time after they've been released from slavery playing with idols. So I'll give them a pass this one time so that they'll just learn. We, we don't see God saying, well, um, I haven't really officially gave them the law. Moses hasn't come down yet. And so um, I, I'll just let it this one time pass because God doesn't do that. As we think about the question of God changing his mind, we need to remember that first of all, the character of who God is never changes. One of the characteristics is that he's omniscient. That means he knows everything. He knows all things. He knows the past, the present, the future. He knows it all. He knows our hearts. He knows our intentions. Even when we don't, he knows it. He knows, he knows it all. And if God doesn't know what's going to happen, then he is not omniscient, which means he is not God. So can God change because something's happened in the future and God comes up to that event and say, I didn't know that's going to happen. I have to change my course. No, because if that's what God does, then he is not God. God knows what's happening. And so he he doesn't have to change. Another characteristic of God is that he's omnipotent, which means he is all-powerful and sovereign. He is in control. So it's not only he knows what's happening, he is guiding the present and the future. He's guided the past. He knows, and he is in control of it. And so he doesn't have to change his mind because he directs the path of history, of our lives, he is in control. And if he's not in control, if he is not sovereign, if he is not omnipotent, then he's not God. These are real important questions. When we say God changed his mind, then we are playing around with the character of God. And I know we're not saying that the scripture says it. I'll get to that. God never changes. And we have to start from that foundation. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, quoting Psalm 102, says this in chapter 1, And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. Speaking of his eternity in the past and his sovereignty, his control, his power, he made all things. It says, they will perish, but you remain. That world will start up and go and decay and pass away and God will be there because he's always the same. He doesn't change. And they will all become like an old garment and like a mantle, you will roll them up like a garment. They will also be changed. The old, this old earth is going to be like our old clothes and we're going to throw it away and we're going to get a brand new earth. And, and the scripture talks about the immortal putting on immortality. We're going to get this whole new body and things are going to change. It, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. But it says in, in, in Hebrews, but you are the same. 
and your years will not come to an end. God doesn't change. Who he is, his character, it doesn't change. It's affirmed over and over in Scripture. James 1.17, it says, Every good, perfect gift from above coming is coming down from the Father of lights. And look what it says, With whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. When God says in Exodus 10, I am going to destroy my people, he is not an unhinged deity that is just, you know, deranged with anger. God is being who God is. He is a holy God and a just God, and he must punish sin. That's who God is. No matter what the culture says, when they say that what God calls evil is good, and what God calls good they call evil, it doesn't matter. God never changes. If he said it was evil, then it is evil. And if it's good, it is always good, no matter what the world says. No matter what rogue liberal theologians might try to tell us about God, God will always be holy and just, and he must punish sin. So to answer the question, does God change his mind, we need to start with the understanding. His character never changes. We also need to see that God's purposes are unchanging as well. God's purposes are unchanging. 1, 11 through 13, it says, Then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, With evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger. And change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself, and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and, this, and all this land which I have spoken I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. Moses begins to intercede for the people. They are... This close, you know, you, your mom said, you know, you're this close to being, you know, we, I'm going to get you, whatever. That's what God's like. He says, I, you are, you're on the verge of destruction. And Moses essentially hits his knees and begins to go to, the, go to God in, in representative of the people. God, do not destroy your people. See, in, in the first section, God says, Go down to your people, Moses, who you, Moses, brought out. And Moses says, no, 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 God, these are your people. And you are the one who brought them out. It was your idea, God, to pull me out of, of my 40 years of shepherding to come and lead these people out. And you did great, powerful signs to bring them out. And you promised you would do that. You promised that to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God, your purpose has always been to be with these people, to bless them, to walk with them. God doesn't need reminding. Maybe Moses needed reminding. But Moses is going to God and he's saying, God, your purpose has been to bless the descendants of Abraham. And that your promised one's going to come through that. And while Isaac looked a little bit like that promised one, he wasn't it. And while Jacob really kind of didn't look like that promised one at all, but one of his sons, Judah, something's going on there. And you promise something's going to happen through these people. If you destroy it, your purposes will be thwarted. And so he's reminding God and again, God doesn't need reminded, but he's reminding God his purposes, they don't change. They're not going to change. God made a covenant with Abraham, and he made an unconditional covenant. God said, I am going to do this no matter what you do. 
It was unconditional. It wasn't Abraham, if you are this and this and this, then I will do it. And God has made some of those promises. But in this case, with the promise of Abraham, he says, Abraham, I'm going to give this to you, period. No matter what. I'm going to give your descendants. I'm going to give you descendants, first of all. And they had to wait. Remember, he was like, like 100 years old, his wife was 90 um, when, the, when the child was born. They had to wait a long time for one. But that doesn't seem like the promise. And then, and then Isaac had um, a couple of sons, and, and they kind of fought, Isaac and Esau, and that, that didn't quite look like the promise of God. And then Jacob had some 12, had 12 sons and they kind of fought and sold one off to slavery. And there was the whole story of Joseph at the end of, of Genesis and, and 70 people walked, in, walked into Egypt at the end of, of Genesis. And now there's at least a million of them of these, this, this family of Jacob, Israel, who are coming out, and it's beginning to look like maybe God meant this promise to Abraham. And we find that promise is even amplified in the New Testament when, when believers are grafted into Israel, the true, the true Israel, those who, who believe in God are, are grafted in. And so we sing, Father Abraham had many sons, right? Many sons had Father Abraham. It was God's purpose to bless Abraham. And through Abraham, because of Abraham, then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Jacob's family. And so all of Genesis throughout Deuteronomy, even Joshua, tells us that story. And then the entire Bible tells the salvation through Jesus Christ, the one promised seed that had been promised through Abraham, who comes through the line of Judah, who becomes the, from the line of David, who is the one who truly brings us salvation and, and freedom. If God purposed something, God has decided it's going to happen. And there is nothing, there is nothing that can change it. If God has purposed it, it doesn't matter if we get two or three gathered in his name trying to pray God out of this idea. If it's God's purpose, it's going to happen. Look what it says in Psalm 33.10. Psalm 33.10 the Lord nullifies the counsel of nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands for a little bit of time. Is that what it says? The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. If God makes a purpose, it's settled. It'll stay there. It'll stay there forever. God's plan will continue on even when there's a Democrat in the White House. Really, I promise you, it will not change. In fact, that could be part of God's plan. And no amount of prayer is going to change it because it's what God planned. I don't know if it is or not. And my prayers should be shaped to God's heart, so I'm seeking God, not what I want. I should be seeking out what he wants me to be praying about. God said in Isaiah 46, declare the end from the beginning. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done. This is, this is God speaking, saying, my purpose will be established. And I will accomplish, and you can underline it, all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country, truly I have spoken, truly it will come to pass. I have planned it, 
surely I will do it. If God has spoken it, it will happen. And that's where the word of God comes in. The word of God then becomes his promises. If God says, this is what I'm going to do, you can bank on it. It's going to happen. That's his promises. He's, and, and First Peter tells us that God spoke and that the men of God were moved along by the Holy Spirit to write that down and so that we know without any doubt that this Bible is the word of God. It is his promises. It is his purpose. And it will never fail. And so we can bet on that. If he said it, he'll bring it to pass. Even earlier in Isaiah, it says this, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And Jesus echoes the same thing in Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. His purposes are unchanging, and that means his promises are unchanging as well. Because he purposes what he promises to do. If he said it, it's going to happen. And so in his plea for the lives of people back in our Exodus passage, Moses appeals to the character of God first. He says, this is, this is, these are your people. This, you are the ones who, who freed them and redeemed them out. You are their God. They may be putting up a gold thing and they might be claiming that that's their God, but God, you and I know the truth. You are their God and you don't ever change. And I also know that your purposes never change and he appeals to the promises and purposes, uh, promise and purposes of God saying, you said to Abraham you were going to bless this people. Not, not a nation developed from Moses. Because that was the deal. God says, okay, well, I'll tell you what, Moses. I'll just wipe them out and we'll start new with you. And we'll start singing, Father Moses had many sons, right? Many sons had Father Moses. That would be the new song. And, and it's, it's a great deal. Moses, you will be the new Abraham. Let's just do that. And he says, but God, that isn't your purpose. His prayer was, God, I want you to do what you have always promised to do, and that is to bless Abraham, and that is this people here. So please don't wipe them out, because I know your purposes never change. And so his character is never changing, his purposes are unchanging, but to understand the issue of God changing his mind, we need to see this, that God's plans, God's plans are unfolding and understand what I'm saying, they're unfolding to us. God knows it. We just read in Isaiah, he knows the end from the beginning. He knows how it's going to start. He knows how it's going to end. He knows it, and he's in control of it. But here's a new shock. We're not God. <laughs> you know, we, we, do, we do not know what's going to happen. We don't. And a lot of times, he doesn't share his plans with us. So we don't know. Look what it says in verse 14. After Moses entreated the Lord and begged him to, to change his mind, it says in verse 14, so the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. We just started the sermon with some verses that say God doesn't change his mind. And then we just read this that said that he did change his mind. How, how do we reconcile that? As we read Scripture more and more, we begin to see the plan of God more clearly. As we walk through our life, we begin to, to walk through trials, and those trials have unknown outcomes. God knows how they're going to turn out. We don't, but we begin to see his plan unfolding. And when it says here that God changed his mind, there are, there are other verses that say that God changed his mind or God relented or God regretted. And in all those cases, you can look at those cases and you can see there were times when God's judgment was hanging over a people and they had an option. He said, I will destroy you. And 
the times where it says he repented were, or, or, or changed his mind or relented was when the people chose to repent and turn. Now, to be sure, there were times that God says, I'm going to punish this people, period. Doesn't matter what they do. When the people of God were, were very idolatrous in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, we could read through that, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, they're, they're, they're kind of parallel storytelling. They, they, th- there was a point where God kept saying, if you would repent and turn, I will, I, will, I will love you again. We read Hosea, and that's how Hosea ends. If you would repent, you'll be my people, and I'll love you. I mean, on and on and on. But there was a point where God said, no more. You're going to Babylon. You will not get rid of this idolatry, and so the punishment will come. And it doesn't matter if they repent. They will repent, but they were going to Babylon. There are times where God does that. But when it says that God changed his mind, the sword of his judgment is hanging over a people, and how they respond would would determine their fate And for the people, it looks like God would have changed their mind. Now, did God know which way they'd choose? Yes, he did. Did God ordain that? Like, did God say that this is going to happen this way? Yes, but he told them there is a choice you can make. And he told the people here, I'm going to destroy you. But if we read further in 32, the people repent and turn, and they destroy that statue, and they turn toward God. And God changed his mind about it. You can think about the prophet Jonah, if you're familiar with Scripture. If not, in your Old Testament, after service, you can look in Jonah and read it. It's four chapters. It's an interesting story. A prophet was told to go preach to the capital of the Assyrian Empire, more, uh, 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 Israel's mortal enemy. They, they, were, they were people who were brutal and terrible people. And God said, go to their capital, Nineveh, and preach to them. And Jonah said, nope, I'm out. Don't want it. He goes, he gets on a boat. He's going the exact opposite direction of the direction God told him to. God brings a storm. They throw him overseas. God brings a great big fish, comes up to the sea, spits out Jonah, and God says again, I want you to go to Nineveh. And Jonah says, fine. And, and, he's, and if you read it, he says it. And he, go, he goes stomping over to Nineveh. Fine, God, I'll go. And I'll preach to them, and they'll never repent. Actually, what Jonah says is, I'll go there, I'll preach, and you'll be the merciful God you are, and you will save them. And I don't like the Assyrians. I just soon you wipe them out. So he goes to Nineveh, and Nineveh takes three days to get through. It says it's a three-day walk in Nineveh. The first day he goes and he says, in 40 days, this is a sermon, 40 days, you're going to be destroyed. There is, no, there is no grace in this. There is no, hey, God's a merciful God and you can repent. He just says, God's going to destroy you all in 40 days. And I wanted you to know. I mean, this is like the reluctant prophet. He doesn't want to do this. And the king gets word of this. And the king of Nineveh says this, and you can read it in Jonah. It says when God, well, first of all, sorry, it says that maybe, the king says, who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. He says, let's, let's repent of our wrongdoing. Let's change And so he puts out a decree, and the people of Nineveh say, yes, we have been sinning, and they turn from their wicked ways. And they begin to follow the God that Jonah is preaching on. And God brings salvation to a city, an incredibly wicked city. And it says in chapter 3, when God saw their deeds, that they had turned from their wicked ways, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So from Nineveh's point of view, Jonah said, you're going to be destroyed, 
And they said, we weren't because God changed his mind. Now, did God change his mind? No. God knew that Jonah was going to be obstinate, stiff-necked, a reluctant prophet, and he says, I'm going to bring salvation to them anyway. And I'm going to do that to put a message in Scripture for all of us to see for the rest of history, the story of Jonah. It's called, in, in theological terms, it's called an anthropomorphism. And that's a fancy word for saying we use human words to describe God because he's bigger than us. And he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't behave like us, but all we know is us. So we're kind of using our terms to describe God. And while God didn't change his mind, we said that God said there was going to be judgment, but he didn't bring judgment. And so we say he changed his mind. When in fact, what happened was God changed the minds of the people. He changed them. Whenever Scripture speaks of God changing his mind or God relenting, even when it says at the very beginning he regretted making humans at the time of Noah's flood, it has to do with the sword of judgment hanging over people. And they can choose to repent or they can stubbornly, stiff-neckedly, obstinately stay in their rebellion. And the judgment will come if they remain stiff-necked and rebellious or they can avoid it. God knows what they're going to do. He is not surprised when the wicked sinner repents and comes to him. But we look at it and say, boy, God must have changed his mind. If we read later, we see, like I said, in Exodus 32, the people did change their mind. And what we see here in this little passage of, of Exodus 32, 7 through 14, what we see is that God's ultimate plan of salvation is unfolding before our eyes. We see that actually he is a God, not only holy and just, but he's one of merciful. So let's see, first of all, what we see is that God is just and must punish sin. We've seen that. They have been enslaved for 400 years. They have had the Egyptian gods before them their entire lives. They are stuck in idolatry. They are unable to get out. And worse off, they don't want to get out. They like making their idols. And in fact, once they, once they get a little bit more out in the wilderness, they start telling Moses, let's go back to slavery. It was easier there. They had onions and leeks and all that back there. Boy, that's good eating. I don't know. But they, they were like, let's go back to our slavery. Let's go back to where there was idols. Let's go back to where it was instead of this promised land that has a land flowing of milk and honey. Let's go back and be in our slavery again. They were completely immersed in their sin, and God cannot abide that because God is holy and he must punish sin. That is the truth of God today. That is the truth of God tomorrow and forevermore. It was God in the Old Testament, God in the New Testament, God now, God forever. He is holy, and he must punish sin. And without Christ, we are stiff-necked, obstinate sinners who love it, love our idolatry, and want to stay in it. And we are pretty obstinate, <laughs> stiff-necked people who will fight it to stay in it. Each of us in our natural state, we stand under the wrath of God deserving judgment and punishment for our sin. And, 
if God did destroy us, he would be perfectly right and just in doing so. We see God's unfolding plan that he is holy and just and must punish sin, but look what he does. God provides a mediator. God provides a mediator. Look in verse 7. Who sent Moses down to the people? God said, Moses, go down to your people. Because your people need someone to stand in the gap. I'm going to destroy them. And so he sent a mediator to intercede for the people. And he becomes this person who stands between God and the people so the wrath of God would not rain down on the people. And in that, he becomes this beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. Because that is exactly what Jesus Christ did for us. We were obstinate sinners, making our idols and loving it. And Jesus comes and stands between us and God. So the wrath of God will not come down upon us. It says in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. We all stood under the wrath of God, was ready to be destroyed, and God sent Jesus Christ to provide us a mediator so that if we would trust in what he did on the cross and him him taking the wrath of God for us, that we could then have a relationship with God that would not end in, in destruction but in life. Salvation comes through that mediator, Acts 4.12. It says there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we've been saved. God is just. He must punish sin, but God also provides a mediator. And then we see at the end that God's unfolding plan is that God displays mercy. In verse 14, it says, God changed his mind about the harm he would do to his people. God changed his mind about bringing wrath to the people because the mediator interceded for them. He didn't bring his wrath. Yes, he knew it was not going to happen. He knew he was not going to destroy these people. But he was unfolding his plan of salvation to us. And it's the story of our salvation. The mediator has stood in the gap like Jesus has done. We've trusted in him. And God doesn't bring wrath. He brings mercy to us. God gives us mercy. When speaking of salvation in Titus 3, 5, Paul says, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. It wasn't because these people stopped making idols. It wasn't their deeds. God saved them, it says, and saved us according to his mercy because he doesn't give us what we do deserve, because that's who he is as well, and that never changes. He is a merciful God. He says, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, and Peter echoes a similar statement, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again. Not giving us what we do deserve, but bringing salvation. And he says, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This story in Exodus is an unfolding of God's plan. God knew it. God knows that's what he's going to do. But we didn't. The people of God didn't. And what they found out was, and from the very beginning when the law was brought out, what we really need isn't a set of rules to live by. We need a mediator who will go between us and God and and avert the wrath that we deserve. And it doesn't matter how good we are, we still need that mediator. And in fact, Psalm 106, later on, much later, several hundred years after this event, the author of Psalms, this this particular psalm, it said this, Therefore, he, God, said that he would destroy them, had not Moses, his 
chosen one stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying destroying him. See, the author of Psalms was reading Exodus and said, you know what I see? I see a God who is holy and just, who sent a mediator, someone to stand in the gap, someone to stand in the breach to keep God from bringing his wrath down and showing his people mercy. It's his unfolding plan that we keep seeing. And we read in John that God did not send his son into the world to destroy the world, but to save the world through him. It's God's purpose and intention to save. It's God's purpose to to bring life. But it depends upon our response. Will we be stubborn and, and keep going our obstinate way? Or will we turn toward God. Does God change his mind? What I'd say is, it's not so much God changes his mind as much as God changes the way he relates to us. That is to say, before Christ, I was under God's wrath. And once I trusted in Christ, God changed the way He related to me because I'm under mercy now. Before Christ came into my life, I was an enemy of God. And once I trusted in Christ, repented and turned, then I am now an adopted son of God. Before Christ, I was dead in my sins. Dead. And I repented and turned, and now I stand alive in Christ, free from sin and death. Did God know that? Yeah, God knew. What changed was how he could relate to me through the mediator. Did I know that was going to happen? No. When I'm dead in my sins, when I'm under the wrath of God, when I'm an enemy, I don't know. But God's plan is unfolding to me. And Christ reveals himself and works in my heart and I give my life over to him and everything changes. From the human point of view, God changed his mind. But God knew the end from the beginning. What really happened was God changed my mind about him. And for those who have come to know Christ, it's the same story for you. And for those who don't know Christ, he can do that. So in light of what we learned this morning, let me real quick. I know I'm out of time. I want to give three lessons for today things to we can walk out of here maybe holding on to. And the first we should come away with, and I hope you gathered this, is that God doesn't change. We can't. God doesn't change. He does not ever change. We need to be careful with our thinking about God. If God can change, then he'd be changing. If he could change his mind, then that, that action, whatever it is, would be changing either for the better or for worse. If, the, if God could change his mind for the worst, that means he could do bad or evil or wrong, which, doesn't, which would make him not God. So he can't choose for the worst. And if he could choose to change for the better, that means where, he at isn't, where he's at is not perfect. He can't change for the better because he is perfect. What's better than perfect? Nothing because it's perfect, right? If God changed, then that means he isn't God. And if his purpose is changed, that means we could never have solid hope in our salvation. If one day God could love us and then the next day say, you know what? you did something wrong, I'm done with you. Then we could never be sure of our salvation. The good news is that God doesn't change and he loves us, period. 
not in spite of, not, not because of our works, in spite of our works, I guess is what I want to say. God can't change. His purposes can't change. But our relationship with God changes. He doesn't change, but he changes our minds so that we start relating to him through this mediator and his mercy comes to us. Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. But that's a good thing. He says, Therefore, O sons of Jacob, you are not consumed. That's good, right? God doesn't change. And sometimes we think, well, that's a bad thing. Because, but it's a really good thing because God is always a God of mercy. God's always a God of salvation. He's always a God of forgiveness. Yes, he is holy and just and must punish sin. But when we have trusted in Christ, our salvation is solid. He doesn't change. And so we are not consumed. And so I hope the one thing we can leave here today is saying God never changes. Praise God. That is good news. The same God we read in the Old Testament is the same God that's in the New Testament who is the same God today and he'll be the same God forevermore. And we can rest on that and that is good news. That's lesson one. God doesn't change. Lesson two, what can we leave maybe today? Second, our prayers change us. Our prayers change us. Question could be, well, if God never changes, his purpose never changed, then why do I pray? God's going to do whatever he wants to do. Well, that's for sure. God doesn't need our permission to do anything. He doesn't need us to stamp approval on his plan. God's going to do what he wants to do. God, that, that is the truth. But we need to remember the purpose of prayer isn't for us to strong arm God to do what we want him to do. And that's sometimes how we approach prayer, that God, I want this thing, and so I'm going to pray hard. I'm going to get a lot of people praying about it. I'm going to try to say the right words. I'm going to try to get this right formula, and I'm going to strong arm God to do what I want him to do. And that is not the purpose of prayer. The purpose of prayer is to align us with God and say, God, what is your will? I remember a pastor preaching years ago saying, when we say amen, what we're saying is, I pray this because I know this is what you want. Now, if you want to transform your prayer life, stop, I mean, you can say amen, but start ending your prayer with, I pray this because I know this is what you want. God, I'm sick today and I need healing, and I pray this because I know this is what you want. Really? Is that what God really wants? I don't know. God, I need help out of this money situation, so I need more money, and I'm going to pray this because I know this is what you want. Is that really what he wants? I don't know. See, prayer is to change us and to shape, not to get God to shape to our will, but so that we will shape to God's will. And we come to the situation and we pray about it. And God, we, our will may be aligned to God's, that we, we feel better, or this loved one we know is going to get better, or, or this situation's going to change. Maybe that is God's will. But what prayer is about is to say, God, what, what needs to change in me so that I can deal with this in the way that gives you most glory. And it might be the situation doesn't change. We've got to walk through it instead of avoiding it. God's purposes will be fulfilled, and he always accomplishes his purposes, listen, through praying people. It's through praying people that he does what he wants to do. God offered Moses the same deal that he offered Abraham. And I'm sure we don't hear it, but maybe Abraham was tempted. But Moses shaped his will to God's and said, God, but this isn't your purpose. Your purpose is to bless Abraham, not, not Moses' lineage, but Abraham's. Prayer is not about controlling God. Prayer changes us. That's the second lesson. God's always in control. I mean, God doesn't change. Prayer changes us. The last lesson today, our prayers are instrumental. We might think that if God never changes, his purpose never changes, then my prayer does nothing. Think, but that's just not true. Think about the, think about the episode today. What if Moses didn't pray? 
What if God says, leave me alone so I can destroy them? And Moses says, all right, (laughs) and steps back. What would have happened? I don't know. I mean, we probably shouldn't do hypothetical situations on Scripture. But you see, his prayer was instrumental in not only standing. I mean, it's God's unfolding plan. It shows this person standing in the gap. What if Jonah didn't go and preach. Even after getting spit back onto the shore, Jonah says, that's fine, God. I go, I'm going again. And they just spit this eternal going on a ship and getting spit back up on shore. What if he never went to Nineveh and preached? Would God still have destroyed Nineveh? Well, they sure wouldn't have heard that they were going to be destroyed. And God said, this is going to happen. I I don't know. I mean, again, we can't talk about because it was God's plan not to, so it happened. But what if someone in your life, and this is probably more important than whether what would happen if Moses or what about Jonah? What if that someone in your life that God has laid on your heart is never prayed for by you? To go to God and say, God, I entreat you to not destroy this person. Because you are a God who saves. And you're a God who gives forgiveness. Give them more time. What if the person praying for you, for your salvation, never prayed for you? Would you have come to Christ? Our prayers are instrumental in the purposes of God. And I'm not sure how that all works. I just, I just don't, you know, I, I don't know. I know God knows the end from the beginning. I know God's going to do what God wants to do, and I know he calls us, he commands us to pray in it. And so we do it. He longs for us to pray to him about those same things that he is going to accomplish. It's important, and prayer is instrumental. One more verse, and then I'll be done. James 5, 16 through 18. One more passage, I should say. Last part of verse 16, it says, The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. God said in his word that our prayers are instrumental right there. He says this, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, just like you. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced fruit. We need to remember our prayers are important and they're instrumental in what God's doing. If you're not praying, what are you missing out on? If prayer changes us, then what, is, what are we missing out on in being shaped to God's will? I'm going to have you bow your heads as we, we come into a time of, of, of response. I appreciate your patience. And I know it's a little bit late, but just for a minute, Right? Lunch will still be there. Just take a minute and think. What what does God want you to learn from today? Is there something you are really trying to change God's mind about? Or Or is actually what's happening is God's trying to get you to change your mind about what he wants to do? God, we come to you. And it's like times like this, I I remember the Romans passage that says that we do not know how to pray as we ought. It doesn't say when we don't know how. It says we don't know how. So God, we come and ask that you would shape our heart to yours. Whatever issue is going on in our life, the thing that we've been praying to you about, God, we try to seek your will and pray in that way. And there's many times we are praying right in line with your will. I believe anytime we're praying salvation for someone, we know that's your heart. Whenever we're praying righteousness in someone's life, we know that is what you desire. But God, there's so many other things we pray about. We pray a lot about health needs because it's hard to walk through this life in pain and sickness, knowing that there's death out there. We, we just, we struggle with that. 
And we're thankful you know our weaknesses because you're a priest that, that understands, understands that and sympathizes with us. But God, we, we really want, we want to be part of your plan. We want to pray according to how you want us to pray. God, ultimately, when we think about your plan of salvation, when we pray for the one that's on our hearts, God, we pray the same thing that Moses prayed. Do not destroy them. But God, you are a God who redeems and saves and gives mercy. And so we ask that this person would come to know you. And it would look from our point of view like you changed your mind, but really we'd ask that you go into their life and change their mind. And so God, whatever, whatever you want us to do today, I pray that you would have the freedom to work in our lives, that we would not be the stiff-necked, obstinate people that we are, that you would soften our hearts and humble our, humble our souls, and that we would respond in the way that you desire. And we ask this, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Staying Connected podcast, the preaching ministry of Pastor Roland Kennison from Rosemont Baptist Church in Montrose, Colorado. We pray the Lord will use this sermon to help you in your life and ministry. If you found this podcast helpful, would you consider contributing to our ministry? You can give online at www.rosemontbaptist.org forward slash give. If you live in Western Colorado or you're visiting the area, we would love to have you visit us on Sunday morning. Our services start at 1045 a.m. You can also watch our worship service live through our website at rosemontbaptist.org. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.